Every year I have uh, the responsibility, opportunity, burden uh, to uh, present a little uh, Twin Lakes Fellowship, we call it Twin Lakes Fellowship Lecture. It sounds awfully grand and ostentatious, but it's really uh, just uh, an attempt to set out the stall, as it were, of the Twin Lakes Fellowship. Who are we? Why are we here? What are we about? And I'll take the opportunity to, uh, being Scottish, to complain and whinge a little bit about some things that are vexing me at the moment, um, and then hopefully offer a word, a word or two of encouragement from the Scriptures before we are done. So those are the three things. I want us to look briefly at the uh, Twin Lakes Fellowship platform, as it were. What is, what is it that we are about? And secondly, I want to offer a word of exhortation and, and alarm. And then thirdly, I hope a word of pastoral encouragement. Uh, so let me, let me remind you of the vision of the Twin Lakes Fellowship. When I was just a regular fellow of the Twin Lakes Fellowship, and Dr. Duncan, my predecessor, uh, would deliver this address, I always found it to be uh, a helpful reminder, I hope you will too, of things that we know and love and hold dear already. Some of us, however, may just begin, be beginning to uh, think through what a philosophy of ministry uh, ought to look like. How do, we, how do we be faithful to our convictions in our current context and time? And so we're going to uh, quickly skim back through the, the, uh, the Twin Lakes Fellowship and what it is that we are uh, about. There's nothing novel or controversial here. You'll find them printed beginning on page 16 in your booklet. Uh, toward the end, there are 15 points. They were originally uh, composed by Dr. Duncan and uh, are an attempt not to say everything about a vital philosophy of ministry. There are many things that are not addressed there that we would be passionate about and advocate for, but it is an attempt to bring together a number of emphases that we think are perhaps um, under-addressed, under-threat, absent, that, that we are passionate for, that we believe in, that we hope you will come to love and value and practice in your own ministries as well. The first of them, you will notice, is expository preaching. And haven't we had uh, a marvelous uh, uh, model of that already in this conference? One of the, the things that Terry Johnson um, has reminded me of in previous Twin Lakes fellowships as we've reviewed and thought about and planned for the future, uh, that we really need to, to work to set before uh, all who gather is, is, is realistic models of faithful expository preaching. There is a difference, you may have found this, between a conference address and the regular exposition of the Word of God by a pastor as he cares for the people of God. And, and those conference addresses are often uh, wonderfully used of the Lord for our encouragement, but I think that this morning and, and last night, while we heard outstanding preaching, we heard outstanding preaching of the kind that I think we would long to see replicated and multiplied in all our churches, where the Scriptures were simply opened, we were shown the truth contained there with clarity and faithfulness. They were illustrated warmly and passionately applied to our hearts, to the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. We put expository preaching first 
because we agree with the larger catechism question and answer 155, when it says that the Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them to Christ, of conforming them to His image, subduing them to His will, strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, building them up in grace, establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. That is to say, God has ordained that the reading, but especially the preaching of the words, should be the primary means by which He draws sinners to Christ and matures them in the path of discipleship till they cross the finish line at last to hear the well done, good and faithful servant of their master. We are to preach the word, brothers, in season and out of season, out of season rebuking, reproving, exhorting with complete patience and teaching. That's our task as ministers of the word. It is our conviction that should the Lord be pleased to pour out the Holy Spirit in a season of revival again in our day, its leading mark will be a renewal of bold and urgent and Christ-centered expository preaching. Everything else for which we stand as a fellowship derives from that basic foundation. We want you all to go back to your churches after this week together, refreshed and renewed in your determination, in your resolve to put your confidence not in your own wisdom, not in your managerial skills, not in your personal charisma, not in technique or in trends, but in the simple declaration ringing from your pulpit that whatever else you may say, and from whatever place God in His providence may have uh, brought you as you preach through the Word of God, that you may say with renewed boldness, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the remainder of the, the talking points printed in the booklet really have to do with church health and church life and, and pastoral piety and pastoral faithfulness. Uh, they have to do with biblical worship and the connection between our confessional theology and healthy church life and healthy church practice. They have to do with worship regulated by the Scriptures, learning to love the psalms and hymns of the faith. We, we try to model simple, regulated, reformed, historic, classic worship in the worship services here at Twin Lakes, and I hope uh, that you uh, have your love for the psalms and hymns and songs of our tradition uh, renewed as you take part in the singing of God's praise, which is always, at least for me, an enormous highlight of our time together every year. We want to remind you and encourage and help you to call the Sabbath a delight, both in your teaching and in your practice, that there might be a, a, an infection 
that begins to spread from you throughout your people of joyful Sabbath observance. Because Sabbath observance, at least in my experience, is better caught than taught. When you see it modeled, when hospitality is practiced, when God's people love to be together and to spend the day together, uh, caring for one another, laughing together, enjoying being with each other, and, and being under the preaching of the Word, Lord's Day morning and evening, that is an infectious and beautiful thing, and we want to commend it to you, which means, of course, we want to commend Lord's Day morning and evening worship. We want to commend not only corporate worship together, but we want to commend family worship. We want to see the, the family altar restored and prized in the homes of our churches. We want to ask, therefore, whether it is held in honor in our own homes as ministers of the words. Isn't it easy to be all about preaching to others, pastoring others, opening the Scriptures with others, praying with and for others, and to neglect our own household and families? And uh, the talking points also have to do with church life and church practice and the theology of the Westminster Confession of Faith properly embraced should generate in our hearts a passion for mission and for church planting and for evangelism. Calvinism, which is simply another word for biblical Christianity, ought to be the most evangelistically driven, the most uh, 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 passionate for the souls of the lost, and there's something dreadfully wrong with us. There is a kind of functional hyper-Calvinism that is uh, uh, revealed only uh, is revealed when we are only concerned for the kind of evangelism we know we don't want to do. And there is no no plan no commitment, no vision to training and equipping our people to point others to the Lord Jesus. Uh, we, love, we love our books. We love truth, I hope. We love the means of grace. But if the truths we hold dear are really operative in our hearts and lives as they ought to be, we ought also to love the lost. We ought also to love the lost and long to see the church multiply uh, as men and women, boys and girls, are pointed to the Savior through our ministries and through the ministries of our congregations. It also ought to generate our, our rich theology, ought to travel that 12 inches from our heads to our hearts and generate a depth of pastoral piety, shouldn't it? How many of us use, you know, we have John Owen on our bookshelves, and we use our collection of the Puritans as a substitute for piety, for holiness. Uh, we, we like truth, uh, but we use truth sometimes. We love, we love theology, but we use our, our love of doctrine as an excuse uh, for our low attainments in following Jesus and, and being like Him in our churches and in our homes and in the way we respond to others and care for them. You remember McShane's words, don't you? A holy minister 
a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. Brothers, we, we want you to be holy ministers, not holier-than-thou ministers, broken, repentant, Christ-dependent, uh, longing for more of the likeness of Jesus in your life, ministers, servant-hearted ministers, whose passion for truth is matched by a passion for others and by true servant-heartedness. Our theology ought to help us avoid foolish gimmicks and manipulative techniques in evangelism. It should help us know clearly what kind of evangelism we don't want to do, but it should propel us out toward others and help us love them well uh, with the Word of God and the gospel of grace. We want to promote also the idea that our theology helps us understand the law of God correctly in all three of its classic uses, showing us our need of a Savior, uh, constraining our consciences as uh, we seek to live out our vocations in society, and directing our lives in joyful service to the living God. We, we particularly want to promote and remind you that having been justified freely by God's grace, the law of God is never our enemy if we are children of God. It is never your enemy. The law of God never, never speaks to you in the voice of the judge. Never again. Never again. God's law may at times speak a word of rebuke, but if you are a child of God, it is always the loving voice of Abba Father for you. The, the condemnation of the law has been taken away. So that now the law is your friend, never your enemy. I've heard so many times, good brothers, speaking of the law as though the Christian still relates to it, as to an enemy, someone that is hostile towards us, that God's, God's law is the, the great problem we have to uh, resolve somehow, and thanks God for the Lord Jesus who, who takes away the difficult problem of God's law. He, he, uh, he covers us in His righteousness so that we're no longer condemned. And now that's all we need to think about, God's law, and how, how tragic that is. And no wonder our attempts to live for God's glory are undermined and weakened, as they so often are, because we don't know how to say how I love your law. It is my delight, and I meditate upon it day and night. Uh, we want you to love the means of grace and the courts of the church and good order and the peace and purity of the church of Jesus Christ because we believe the church has a unique calling not to fix society, not to transform the world, but to preach the gospel and disciple the saints. We believe the church is the only place where the kingdom of Jesus Christ is made visible, this side of the new creation. The church is the embassy of King Jesus in the midst of a dying world. The church is the biblical plan, the whole biblical plan 
for the gathering in and perfecting of the elect from every tribe and language and nation. So when you leave, we want you to go back loving the church more, not less. More patient with the church in all its failings and all its weaknesses and all its compromises. More zealous that the name of Christ would be held in honor in our churches and more determined to be Christ's instrument in accomplishing that great design. I hope it is clear that the Twin Lakes Fellowship is not a partisan political caucus, that we are not here this week to strategize and plot an agenda for the courts of our respective denominations. There is, I think, a time and a place for church politics. It is a tragic necessity this side of the new creation. Some discussion of the important issues that come before our denominations is always going to be necessary. That's just not what this week is about. It's not what this week is about. Brothers, this week is meant to be an oasis for your souls, not a forum in which to vent your spleen at all the nonsense you can see around you. So let's... uh, I say this to myself as much as I say it to you. Let's strive to leave our complaining and our politicking at the door this week and strive to make it a spiritual discipline that we seek to live out in these few days together to encourage one another and all the more as we see the great day approaching. So first of all, the platform of the Twin Lakes Fellowship, that's what we're about. We simply want to say to you, We believe that the means that Christ has ordained, preaching the Bible, praying the promises, administering the sacraments according to Christ's commands, singing the praises of the Savior, the the life of a healthy church, there's no, no gimmick, no rocket science, nothing fancy, just do that and see what the Lord will do. Have confidence in the means he has ordained, and press on. And the Lord will bless you, as he's promised. That's our platform. Then secondly, I wanted to say something by way of challenge and exhortation. Uh, I I do want to try and be careful here. I don't want to overstate this, uh, brothers, but I wanted to express my concern at what I perceive to be a growing trend toward the therapeutic in our preaching and in our programs. I uh, don't have anyone in mind here, any particular minister or ministry in mind. This is just a note that I've heard, uh, that I've seen, and it is a source of some some concern to me. And since I have the microphone and you don't, I get to complain about the things that uh, are on my mind. Uh, Christian Smith, uh, the... the, uh, sociologist uh, famously diagnosed the prevailing religion of American society at large, you'll remember, as moralistic therapeutic deism. You remember that definition? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Many of us have found that an insightful summary, and yet when the problem is out there, we can sort of shake our heads at the tragedy of other people. Moralistic therapeutic deism is their problem. But when the problem is in here, as it were, among ourselves, 
in the unexamined adoption of language and in the ways of parsing the human condition and the gospel solution that we have perhaps begun to deploy, what then? And again, let me be careful and and insist I'm not accusing anybody. I don't have a particular minister or church or ministry in mind. These are just trends that I sense. I may be wrong, and if you have a different perspective, I'd love to hear from you. But I think there's a trend among confessionally reformed and evangelical pulpits to redefine sin and salvation along therapeutic lines. I think the lowest hanging fruit, the place where you can see that most clearly, I think, is in the vocabulary of brokenness that is now almost universal. Uh, To be clear, we are broken, aren't we? The fall broke us, didn't it? That's perfectly true, but brokenness is not my deepest dilemma. It's not yours. It's not my most urgent problem, and it's not yours. We have to wrestle not just with brokenness, but with sin. They're not the same thing, are they? Brokenness is not a synonym for sin, and we ought not to use them interchangeably. My, uh, my great concern here is that this vocabulary, I think, shifts our attention away from God, with whom we all have to do, before whom we all must give an account. Sin is sin because it offends the holiness of our God, and it puts our attention on ourselves. I am broken, and I need fixing. David Wells, I think, called this out brilliantly a few years back in words that I'm going to quote at length if you'll bear with me for a few moments. He said this, sin is not simply feeling bad about ourselves. It is violating what is right in God's law and character. Those who inhabit the contemporary self-world look only for therapy, not for forgiveness and regeneration. Recovery, in fact, is their way of speaking about regeneration. It is all about human technique and not about miraculous intervention. All of this was apparently lost on evangelicals who stumbled after one another in their earnest pursuit to recast their faith in this new language from the culture. What has happened was that people learned to think in the language of the therapists, language that had once belonged in a tiny circle of theorists of the self-movement migrated into books, newspapers, schools, and then into common speech. Who has not thought about self-esteem? Who has not imagined that being authentic means disclosing feelings, that reality was actually accessed through our feelings, that feeling was far more real and important than thinking. So it was that we all became our own therapists. Our small group has become our own private workshop. Our private narrative is our own textbook, and our internal struggles are our microcosm of the entire world's struggles. In a famous book he wrote in the 1970s, says Wells, Carl Menninger asked whatever became of sin. The answer, according to Wells, is that some of our sins simply became crimes and most of the rest became diseases. 
Some of our sins became crimes and the rest became diseases. I think that's right on target. If our problem is brokenness, if we are diseased, we don't need forgiveness. We need healing. Our problem isn't that God is angry at our sin. Our problem is that we are not quite whole. Our message will not be that Jesus can reconcile us to God from whom we have been alienated by our rebellion and sin, but that Jesus can mend our broken hearts and untangle the mess of our dysfunction. And if we are not careful, we will have made Jesus into a tool we deploy in order to treat the human condition And our mission will cease to be that of shepherds tending the flock, and we will become instead veterinarians merely trying to fix them. We're shepherds, not veterinarians. We're to lead the flock to green pastures and quiet waters, and the Lord will restore their souls. The man-centeredness of that trend toward the therapeutic, I suspect, may be a real barrier to revival and spiritual reformation in our day. Our call is not to plunge ever more deeply into the abyss of self-analysis, seeking in our own emotional or psychological wholeness the meaning of true blessing. Our call, brothers, is to die to self. It is to walk the path of self-forgetfulness with renewed Christ-centeredness. We're not here to ask the Lord to heal our sin. Sin cannot be healed. Sin must be killed. Brothers, if I could presume for a moment to exhort you all, many of you ought to be here exhorting us, but I'm here and you're not, so I'm going to presume. Uh, Let me exhort you to vigilance in your preaching and in your teaching and in the balance of your church's ministry that the spotlight falls on Christ and Him crucified. Crucified under the wrath and curse of God for the pardon and peace of hell-bound sinners that it fall there. Let that be your message, not not merely the therapeutic. So the platform of the Twin Lakes Fellowship, and then uh, a brief word of exhortation. My rant is now over, I promise. And finally, uh, uh, what I hope is a brief word of encouragement. Let me invite you, if you would, to take your Bibles in hand and to turn with me to Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Mark 4 at the 26th verse. Mark 4 at verse 26, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. 
But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or to what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Two parables, I'm sure they're quite familiar uh, to us. The first in 26 through 29 is a parable about the nature of growth in the kingdom. The nature of growth in the kingdom. The second, 30 through 32, a parable about the extent of the kingdom's growth. The nature and then the extent of growth in the kingdom. Think about the first of them just for a few moments. Verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man scatters seed on the ground, and so on. Then look at the last line, the very last line. When the grain is ripe, he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. That is an echo from Joel chapter 3 at verse 13, put in the sickle, for the grain is ripe, speaking about the last judgment, about judgment to come, the great harvest of souls at the end of the age. So this is a parable about life between the first and final coming of Jesus. It's a parable for the church in every age till Jesus returns when the harvest at last is taken up. Parable for you and for me and for our ministries and for our churches. I think one way to get at the meaning of this first parable is to notice the two actors in the parable. There are two actors. The first of them is the man who sows the seed, and the other is the seed itself. The, 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 the sower and the seed are both actors in this parable. Notice what the man does carefully. What does he do? He scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and he gathers in the harvest at the end. The man in the picture is uh, uh, emblematic of the work of God through the church in the world. And notice our task. We sow the seed. We reap a harvest. That's it. That's our task. We sow the seed. And under the blessing of God, we reap the harvest. And that's it. Where's the man between the sowing the seed and the reaping of the harvest? What is he doing? He's sleeping and rising night and day. We sow and we harvest. That's our task. Between sowing and reaping, the point is, we have no part in causing the growth, right? We sow and we reap, but we don't cause it to grow. Then notice what the seed does. The seed sprouts and grows. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. The life is in the seed, not in the sower. I, I need to hear that fairly regularly so that I do not take to myself a burden the Lord has not called me to carry. I dare say you may too. The life is in the seed, not in the sower. 
The seed grows, he knows not how the earth produces by itself. The life is in the seed and not in the sower. Do you, do you believe that, brothers? Many of you know this far better than I. I found it a necessary reminder to see here again, my job is not to make the kingdom grow. I know you think that's awfully elementary. It hit me like a thunderbolt as a helpful reminder. My job is not to make the kingdom grow. I sow. I may harvest. I sleep and rise night and day. I go out to look at my field. doesn't look like much has changed. The progress is slow. Maybe here and there there are a few green shoots beginning to appear. There is growth, but it is almost imperceptible measured on a daily basis. And in those times, isn't it easy to start looking for mechanisms to sort of speed things along a little bit? I want miracle growth for the kingdom of God. But that's just not my task. It's not your task. Brothers, the life is in the seed. Sow the seed. That's it. That's your job. Sow the seed and be patient. The seed of the kingdom, the seed of the gospel will grow. We know not how. The earth produces by itself. God has ordained the preaching of the word of God, the prayers of the saints, the faithful ministry of the ordinary means of grace for the growth of the kingdom. Just do that. You don't need miracle grow. Just do that. And see what God will do. See how the seed grows in God's time. We, it grows, we know not how. The earth will produce by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, then the harvest. The nature, of, the nature of kingdom growth, I don't make it grow and neither do you. What a relief. I don't make it grow, neither do you. At least we're not called to try. What a relief. Growth is God's business. Faithfulness is ours. The nature of kingdom growth, secondly, the extent of kingdom growth, verses 30 through 32. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? With what parable? What parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Notice the opening questions in verse 30 about the kingdom. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It's actually an echo of Isaiah 40, verse 18, speaking about God himself. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? The parable is designed, in other words, to help us remember the truth about God, whose kingdom it is and the way he is at work within it. If the first parable is about slow, sometimes imperceptible growth, the second is about unlikely beginnings with mighty endings because the Lord is the one who presides over his kingdom and not us. The mustard seed is tiny, and yet from it, 
shall come a bush that will shelter all the birds of the air. As we look at the church, as you look at your church, maybe you conclude the kingdom of Jesus Christ is an improbable, small, weak, unlikely agent in the hands of God. And you get discouraged. I do. But this parable is a promise, isn't it? It's a promise. And I think it's one I need, maybe you need to hear and believe anew. The mustard seed will become larger than all the garden plants. The birds will nest in its shades. Don't judge the church's destiny by its present appearance. Don't preclude all possibility of progress and advance in your ministry because your present circumstances are difficult and the opportunities may be constrained and limited. The prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 17.23, Ezekiel 31.6, so the prophet Daniel, Daniel 4.12 and 4.21, they both use this image of the birds of the air nesting in the shade of a great tree. The tree, of course, is a picture of a, of a great and growing kingdom. Here it is, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the birds of the air are the nations of the earth. The unstoppable kingdom will gather beneath its branches people from every tribe and language and nation. One day, bending the knee and singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. A great company no one can number will gather around the throne one day. They will, Jesus says. That's the church's destiny. And you are a participant, an instrument in the Master's hands in the realization of that grand design. There is, of course, no promise that any particular church will inevitably grow. There's no guarantee of certain prosperity for the work of any of us in this room. But we are laborers in the global kingdom of Jesus Christ, laborers together in our master's service. His church does not belong to us. It belongs to him. And its growth is not our business, it's His. We are to be faithful to the task committed to us. Sow the seed. Perhaps if God blesses, reap the harvest and wait upon Him. You will be the instrument by which the, the mustard seed kingdom is planted. And one day it will reach the nations, the ends of the earth, the birds of the air will nest in its shade. If you're at all like me, you will be good at applying the comforting truth of the sovereignty of God to the hearts and trials and sorrows and sore providences of your people when they come to you. We say to them, we remind them, what was it that Cooper taught you to sing? We say, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, we tell them, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. That's what we say, isn't it? 
Brothers and brothers, I think the thrust of Jesus' teaching in these two parables is to call us as ministers of the gospel to apply the same medicine to the discouragements and setbacks and trials and temptations of our ministries, our own ministries. We need to be reminded, I do, that his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Isn't that actually very close to what Jesus is saying right here? In God's timing, according to the seasons and patterns of growth that he's ordained for the seed of the kingdom in the world, his work shall advance. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear until the harvest comes. The mustard seed will grow and grow larger than all the plants of the garden till the birds of the air make their nest in its shade. They will, they will do not grow weary in well-doing. You will reap a reward if you do not give up. Press on, brothers. Don't be discouraged. Do not measure the kingdom by your present trials and limited circumstances. One day, the promise of Christ will be fulfilled. Remember, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So, a reminder of what we're about. We're about loving the means of grace, encouraging each other, to stay the course. And a word of alarm. Let's be sure that the gospel is crystal clear, that we preach the cross where the wrath and curse of God on our sin was borne away. And a word I hope of encouragement. The kingdom is growing and the purposes of Christ will be fulfilled. And you, dear brothers, are his instruments. What a privilege. You are his instruments in fulfilling that great design. Let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice in your kindness to us, your patience with us, the way that you bear with us, you're so long-suffering, you, you, though we grieve you, though we quench your Spirit's work, though we often betray you and fall short of your glory, though we have become practiced at speaking truth with our lips and living as though we didn't believe it ourselves, though in so many ways we are riddled with defections from a pattern of faithfulness in our callings, yet you bear with us and still use us. You use us despite us. You use us because you love to take the weak things and the things that are not, and you shame the wise, and you bring to nothing the things that are, that all the glory might be yours. Oh, would you help us as, we, as we're so prone to do sometimes, evaluate our own progress and find it so slight and small. And as we look at our ministries and see them to be threadbare and, uh, and fruitless as we think them, help us to remember the promises of our Savior. 
Our task is not to cause the growth, but to sow the seed. Our task is not growth, but faithfulness. And to cling to the the promise that one day the, the little tiny mustard seed kingdom that we see around us will one day be so expansive that all the birds of the air will find shelter under its wings. Would you please use us as we seek to hold the line, stay the course? Would you please use us to fulfill that promise? And now as we enjoy fellowship together over our lunch, we ask that you would bless our meal. Help us to encourage one another and all the more as we see the great day approaching. Help us to speak truth in love. Help us to bear one another's burdens so that we may leave refreshed indeed by our partnership in the gospel. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.